And I, and I just thought my whole time of mind, like some out, somewhere out there, people are praying that somebody's going to come help us help, help them. And, and, and we had the ability to do it. And I mean, uh, always, every time I make a decision, I lean forward to things that, that I'm passionate about, burdened about, burdened at, and if doors start closing, I know I'm not supposed to go through it. I won't force it. When doors fly open, uh, I know I'm in the right place. And, and, and with this, the doors just kept opening and we had the opportunity to keep serving and we, we kept doing it until the doors closed. Hey guys, if you missed out on the last conference in Nashville, Tennessee, you don't want to miss out on the next one. It's April 28th through May 3rd, Orlando, Florida, the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center. You made a mistake missing the last one. You don't want that to happen again on this one. Five days of some of the best training you're ever going to experience packed into one event. We have an early bird special right now, $50 off. Use 24 early bird on our website, streetcop.com. Look for the conference, click the link, register today. If you want to get significantly better at this profession in five days, don't dare miss out on the 2024 Street Cop Conference. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. My name is Dennis Benino, and today I'm with us, somebody a lot of you will know, Chad Robichow. Robichow? Robichow? How the fuck do you say your last name? <laughs> Robichow. Chad Robichow. Does anybody ever get it right? No, no, no. That's why my, nick- my nickname is Robo, because uh, a long time ago, uh, people in the military couldn't say Robichow. So I uh, got a friend of mine, Foster Harrington, who passed in our, in our, in our, on our first deployment. He uh, came up with Robo, and that stuck. Maybe for the Street Cop audience, you can tell us a little about who you are and your journey through life and what you're up to now. So we can start at the beginning, where you grew up, all that jazz. Yeah, uh, well, you know, I'm from Southern Louisiana, like really like swamp people, bayou country, like an hour south of New Orleans. If people been to New Orleans, if you don't know there's a south of New Orleans, there actually is. Uh, so I, that's where I grew up, um, French-speaking family on both sides. My parents spoke French. All you know, the former grandparents spoke French, and uh, real, real blue collar. My my family are all commercial fishermen, and uh, and when I was seventeen years old, they joined the Marine Corps. A uh, long history of uh, military in my family since eighty four years. World War II, Korea, Vietnam. My father was the first Marine in our family who served as an infantryman in Vietnam, and uh, and then myself joined the Marine Corps. Both my sons are Marines, so big history of military. And my family uh, joined the Marine Corps for a couple of reasons. One, I think family history, uh, wanting to, uh, you know, continue on that legacy. But also, I just grew up a, a rough childhood, a very dysfunctional, broken family. My father really struggled with coming back from Vietnam and never, never, ever uh, being well. And so a lot of physical abuse in my home. Um, when I was 13 uh, years old, decided we would join the military. My, my brother, who's a year older than me. Uh, the two of us made the decision. It's kind of like, Hey, let's escape this lifestyle. We'll join the military. We both grew up as athletes since we were kids in martial arts and, and, uh, started running and swimming and seeing a Navy SEAL movie. And we were like, Hey, we want to do something special, but we don't want to be joining the Navy. So we learned about being recon Marines. And, uh, and that was, that was what we set our eyes on about a year into that. My brother, uh, tragedy hit and he was shot and killed. So I was 14. He was 15. Whoa. And so it was extremely devastating to me because, you know, I grew up in a dysfunctional home like that. The siblings get really close. So my brother and I were really, really tight and, uh, and it put me in a really deep isolation. My mother couldn't handle the loss of a son, uh, went moved in with her parents. My father didn't want to deal with a grieving wife. 
he took off, took a job overseas. So me and my 18 year old sister were left to live on our own. And so from the age of 15 to 17, uh, I lived with my 18 year old sister, worked and tried to tried to uh, go to high school at the same time. And uh, never got, I always had hung around with a lot of bad people, but I never got into drugs or anything like that. Cause of probably being focused in the Marine Corps, being focused on martial arts and, and sports. Uh, but I was not going to graduate high school. And uh, I remember going to a Marine Corps recruiter named Staff Sergeant Ronald Brown. I still remember his name uh, almost 30 years ago because uh, most people will remember their recruiter because they hate him. I remember mine because I'm thankful for him and, I, and I'm forever be grateful because I went to him and said, here's my situation. I'm probably not going to graduate high school, but my dream is to be a recon Marine. Can you help me? And he had uh, some compassion for me. And he wrote a hardship letter to headquarters Marine Corps and got me enlisted in Marine Corps. 1993, I was 17 years old, no high school diploma. Uh, and I promised him, not contractually, but just made a promise to him that I get my GED after I got a uh, infantry school. And so I went through boot camp, went through infantry school, went to 29 Palms, California uh, to serve as an infantry Marine and got my GED from a place called Copper Mountain College. For any 29 Palms Marines, they probably know what that is. And and uh, and then all these years later, I have an MBA and I always joke when I'm speaking that I can't spell an MBA, but I got one. And uh, <laughs> but, but the truth is, I, you know, I, I say that jokingly, but the Marine Corps gave me the second chance uh, and a clean slate to start my life. And at the young age of 17, I just really understood that, appreciated that opportunity and embraced it. And and I focused on that goal that my brother and I set and, and pushed forward uh, to be a recon Marine, tried out and uh, made it my first time through. In 1994, I became a reconnaissance Marine. So many, so many great jobs in the military, uh, especially after, you know, doing all, you know, tons of combat deployments, learning about how all the jobs work together. And, you know, when you're young, you kind of have ego about your job being better than others. But the truth is so many great jobs work together for the common goal of the military. But for me, there's no better job in the military period than being a, a recon Marine or eventually for me being a force recon Marine. And I, I love that job. When I got into it, I was surrounded by some of the most incredible men, especially having a dad, the way the type of dad that I had to go into Marine Corps with men that were older than me to teach me not just how to be a recon Marine, but, but how, to, how to be a man and uh, how to, you know, uh, do impossible things and achieve impossible goals. And I, I went through you know, combat diver school and, and military freefall school. And eventually I became the uh, uh, team leader for third force recons of a uh, military freefall team. And, and I just love that job. And, and uh, unfortunately, uh, now, I say fortunately, unfortunately, at the time I went in 1993 is when I went in the 90s, we went in war. So you're training and training and training and don't have anywhere to go. And you kind of long to go to combat and do your job. And unfortunately, that came at the cost of September 11th. And, you know, after that, I got exactly what I asked for, you know, did a, I, I thought my unit, I actually thought third force was going to, my, my unit was going to deploy right away. It didn't. And I tried out for a JSOC task force, a joint special operations command task force, was selected and went over to uh, our premier, what I believe our nation's premier special operations unit is, and uh, and served in that served at that unit, represented the Marine Corps that unit with the Navy uh, for eight deployments. And my job there was a little different than most people might imagine the military to be. Uh, my job was an AFO, Advanced Force Operator. And for those that don't know what the job is, it's kind of like being undercover in in the cop world. You uh, you you go in your uh, you go ahead of your unit. And build the clandestine infrastructure, build the reason to be in non-permissive places, places that the military is not at, but bad guys are. And you create a reason to be there as a an American or or, or a foreigner. And uh, you build a reason to be there, and you stay in that area, you know, surrounded by the enemy. And you work with local nationals, and you and you um, 
in through clandestine means you build a you build a mechanism to put your assaulters on target to capture or kill bad guys. And so that was my job. And uh, and that's what led me to uh, working so closely with and people. A lot of people know my story about Aziz and working with uh, my teammate Aziz. Uh, that's why, because I, I was embedded with Aziz. He was my teammate. He started off as my interpreter. He became my teammate. Uh, he, he and I spent months. We did hundreds of missions like that. So we spent months out in the mountains of Afghanistan or, or across the border in Pakistan together, just living together in those mountains. And and uh, we became very close doing that, you know, doing these operations. And he saved my life multiple times. And and when we were not in those mountains, I didn't go back to base. And he went home. I went to his home and and uh, his wife cooked us. His wife, Hatra, who's in the next office over right now, she, she cooked our first warm meal uh, when we came out of those ice cold mountains. And you know, and and I'd, I'd sleep at his home, and I was there when his kids were born. Mashud and Mashud, I were born. I held them as babies, and so he became family to me. So I had a very unique experience in deploying to Afghanistan during those eight deployments and in operating that way. You know, as he's an incredible human being, and I had a you know, really unique privilege to serve in that capacity. Tell me about Aziz. How did that start? Aziz, Aziz is an incredible story. In fact, he'd be a great guest for you to have on one day. He he. Uh, he grew up like in, you know, when you think of third world poverty, uh, the, the lowest level of poverty you could imagine, that's disease. He grew up, uh, never been, never heard English on the radio, never saw English on TV because he never seen the radio or television before. No one in his family spoke English, but his dad told him when he was eight years old, if you, if you want to be something in life, you have to learn this English language from the West because there's going to be a pipeline coming from Turkmenistan through Afghanistan and you'll be able to get a job. And, uh, and so Aziz at eight years old, went and found books on how to learn, how to learn English. And he taught himself English at that young age of eight years old. Wow. By the time he was a teenager, he was teaching other kids in his neighborhood. And by the time I think he was like 14 or 15, he says he was speak, he was teaching about 500 people in Afghanistan English. So he's kind of taught himself and then start teaching others. It was probably pretty, it was probably pretty terrible English because he had no one contrasted to, but that's what he was doing. And, uh, and during the, what's called the black era of the Taliban, he got caught teaching English. He was 17 years old. The Taliban caught him teaching English, which was the infidel language. And uh, he got in a, a physical altercation with some Taliban guys, was in hiding on the run. And his, and his father, knowing that Taliban would have killed him, uh, put him with some human traffickers to, to flee Afghanistan. And so he fled Afghanistan uh, with some human traffickers, ended up in uh, crossing the, the ocean and, and uh, ended up in Dubai, uh, living uh, as a houseboy for a Christian family. And uh, so he's in Dubai doing that. And then uh, and 9-11 happens. And when 9-11 happened, his dad called him up and said, hey, you didn't learn an English for nothing. You need to come back and, and help fight for your country. And he did. And he came back and uh, he turned himself into the immigration in Dubai. They sent him back to Afghanistan and he went straight to, uh, to apply to be interpreter, got assigned to the third special forces group uh, with the United States Army, did a great job there. And they promoted him to go over to U.S. Embassy and work on an anti-terrorism task force. And then he did a good job there. And then he tried out uh, or, or was handpicked and uh, got selected to come over to JSOC, to NSW, Naval Special Warfare, where he served with me at the premier special operations unit for our country, you know, for 15 years. And uh, he was specifically for continuity purposes assigned to me for every one of my eight deployments, which is very unique. If you know anything about interpreters, usually you get one interpreter for a big military unit. You go back on another deployment, you get a totally different interpreter. So we had a very unique situation, partially for the continuity of my operation, but also because he was so good uh, and so trustworthy of who he was. And uh, like I said, I've, I've said he saved my life 
three times specifically, but he probably saved my life every day. Like, don't walk there. Don't eat that. Don't talk to that person. If you talk right now, they're going to kill us. Uh, he was just always looking out for me. And um, he was, in fact, we got him awarded. He was the first Afghan to be awarded by Congress and, and the only that I know of to be awarded by Congress for an operation where he and I went to uh, evacuate these four Navy SEALs that were caught in a Taliban village. And, you know, I, I got the call in the middle of the night uh, based on where I was. And they, the command said, hey, we have these 14 guys that are stuck in this village. They were in a, I can't say too much details about it, but it was a clandestine operation where the, the assets they had, uh, if if we would have sent a QRF, a traditional uh, quick reaction force to get them, certainly the, you know, the, the team would have probably killed all the bad guys and got them out, no problem. But the mission would have been compromised. There would have been a lot of collateral damage to civilians. And so they wanted to try a clandestine extraction first, and they called me to do it. And I'm trying to devise a plan. And Aziz is like, hey, let's just jump in a truck and drive down through the night and go get them in the middle of this Taliban village. And he didn't know these guys. He's not American. And he just like, these are my brothers. And we need to go get them. And, uh, you know, he really convicted me to to get in that passenger seat of that vehicle. And we drove through the night and and I trusted his lead. And, uh, you know, he's, he he was able to get these. We got all the equipment out. We got the seals out. And uh, and there was no compromise in operation. You know, he was awarded by Congress for uh, for his bravery in doing that. And um, and then, um, you know, there's a, a story I hadn't shared for years now, but we just recently uh, felt comfortable to talk about it together. But um, we're in a place called Batakut, Afghanistan. And uh, my command would typically go after you know, guys on the top 10 list. And this, this guy was, I think he was number six on the list. And, uh, they were going to on a capture kill mission for this, this guy, you know, number six ta Taliban leader and, um, Batakut Afghanistan at the time was pretty heavily populated with Taliban at the time. Uh, that's why this guy was there And the U S military is pretty much a non-permissive environment. U S military was, if they patrolled through that area, they were going to get attacked and uh, and so we went there a few weeks early before our, our assault force to, would go in and, and set up the operation. And it was the middle of the winter. I remember, you know, how cold it was. And Aziz and I, we had parked in the in this tree line and we we're walking across an open field. Batacoot's like a farming town. And we're walking across this open field and we get to the other side of the field. And uh, and there's this old man who's a farmer and he comes up to Aziz and starts talking. And I'm trying to pick up what they're saying. And uh, and he tell, basically what he tells Aziz is, hey, the Taliban is here and they're looking for a foreigner, which which would be me. And uh, they know foreigners here. And so Aziz is like, hey, we have to go. And uh, the field we were walking across was actually, uh, I remember being upset that we were walking through this field because it was like wet, snow, muddy. And I'm like, man, this sucks walking through this field. Ended up being a blessing in disguise because as we walked back to that field, it, it prevented the Taliban from driving in a field after us. Um, we were walking and uh, and I, I heard these trucks driving behind us, kind of caught up our peripheral. They were flying Taliban flags, which means they're pretty, they're pretty, you know, comfortable to be flying their Taliban flags. Uh, three trucks, about 20 to 30 Taliban fighters. They even had a PKM mounted on top of one of them. And um, which, you know, surprisingly, we, we survived this. Uh, but they hit the brakes and stopped. I remember hearing them backing up and we we're like, hey, let's just keep walking. And talk and, and I had an AKS as he's had AK 47. We actually traded guns, which might sound weird, but we traded guns because he felt more comfortable uh, with me having that AK 47. I traded ammo bags and uh, we were just talking uh, about what we we're going to do. We we're talking about, hey, if they hit us in the middle of this open field, anybody that's been in the military listening knows that that field is now a large open danger area and they're only about 100 yards behind us. And uh, so we're talking about bounding if, and, and what we're going to do. And the guys start get out of the truck, they're yelling at us. And uh, I, I don't, 
I don't think they were yelling in Dory. I think they were yelling in, in Pashtun because I couldn't understand them. But I heard the word Bosh, which means stop in both languages. And when I heard the word stop, like my only thing I stopped was like my heart because I knew they were they were talking to us. And but in my mind, I was thinking, you know, I I don't think they're gonna shoot us because the Taliban doesn't do, typically do like random acts of violence. They usually want like some kind of permissions or something like that. They didn't know who we were. So I'm like, they're not going to shoot us and they're not going to come out in this field. So if we just play stupid and keep walking, we're probably going to walk away. That was my thought. And then I heard a round crack. I don't know if I heard a gun go off first or the round crack over my head. You can hear the, the air pop. Uh, I don't know what I heard first, but I knew that we had just been shot at. And, and immediately I'm like, if we run, we're going to get killed. Uh, if we start bounding right away, we're going to get killed. So we just have to turn and fight. And I, so I, I turned around and uh, I didn't even drop it to my knee, just from the off hand. I had that AK-47 and, and the first thing, pers- person I saw was a guy had, who had an AK-47. He was standing against the door of a red Hilux truck. I just had that image in my mind still. And and that was the first person I saw and, uh, and the first kind of threat I saw. And so I just center mass on him and I fired two rounds initially. And I thought I missed him because he kind of, he went backwards, but I saw the window bust behind him. So I thought I might've missed him. And then he, he fell. And uh, I was expecting like a hail of gunfire to come back, but actually I think we shocked them. I don't think they thought we were going to fight. And so they actually all ran behind their vehicles. And when they, when they started running, I, I just emptied my, started emptying my magazine and told Aziz to move. And we began that Australian peel, lateral Australian peel or, or bounding drill. And uh, while we were moving, we were like on a third iteration. For those that don't know that drill, it's I empty a magazine, Aziz moves, he sets in place. He empties a magazine while I'm moving and reloading, and we bound. I bound past him, and as he bound out of a large open danger area, and that was the only really option in that kind of scenario to get out of there. And in the, on the third iteration, uh, Aziz was moving, and I was shooting, and he saw something I didn't see. He saw someone uh, pop up with a with an RPG, a rocket propelled grenade launcher, and uh, you know when you're when you're in that scenario, like I'm trying to draw fire so he can move, but I'm firing, so I'm presenting. You know, I'm forcing. You know, them to have a press of fire, suppressive fire on them. Aziz saw that RPG and stopped and, and exposed himself uh, and, and just stopped. And, and from an offhand position, he shot the guy and dropped the guy with the RPG and uh, and put himself in danger, you know, saved both of our lives. The RPG didn't go off. And uh, when that happened, I just yelled, run. And we ran because we were close enough to the tree line, ran the tree line and uh, got in a vehicle, drove back to our safe house and contact our, contacted our command and told them what happened. And they were like, hey, was this like chance contact or is this compromised? And um, I asked Aziz, hey, what do you think? And again, you know, he, he has no stake in the game. He's just doing a job he gets paid for. But, you know, time and time again, he always talked about freedom and democracy in a way that I never heard Americans speak about it before. But this is a guy who never even witnessed freedom and democracy. He's talking about a freedom for his daughters that he hadn't even had yet to not have to be sex enslaved. He freedom for his sons to be who they want to be. And, and, uh, you know, and he, people talk like stuff like that, but he was willing to sacrifice everything for it because in the, in that moment when our command pretty much said to us, is this mission or go or not? We could, we had to, we had the authority to say, Hey, this is compromised. We, we want to get out of here or we're going to stay for two more weeks by ourselves to wait for the command to come. It was a Z's who had no operational stake in it. Say, Hey, we're good. We came here to do this job. Let's stay. And, and finish it. These guys, it just, they just ran into us. They're not looking for us specifically. We're good. And he chose, and, and uh, you know, I, I trusted him and followed his lead. And he's just an amazing human being. And that's just one, you know, one story I could tell, you know, probably 50 stories like that of, of things that he did. And, uh, you know, I love this guy. He's, he's my friend. And uh, so, you know, you fast forward to the Afghanistan withdrawal. 
Um, and, uh, you know, when President Biden made the announcement we're going to surrender Afghanistan, I was absolutely no way uh, I'm leaving this dude and his wife and six kids in Afghanistan. And like nothing, nothing. There wasn't even, it wasn't even ever a question. Like, uh, we're, we're going to go get this dude. Uh, he has to come. He's my friend. I'm not leaving him there. And so that's what we did. That, and that's, that started the the rescue effort in Afghanistan for us. So. Tell me a little bit about that. That's really fucking cool, man. Yeah. You know, um, there's, there's a bigger backstory. So a lot of people have, have heard a story and didn't read the book. Cause I put more of it in the book. Um, maybe think this is interpreter because there's a lot, you know, again, I, I don't want to just, I, I'd be careful saying this because men have so much respect for all our military and I don't want to minimize anybody's experience with their interpreter where they had an interpreter and so many, you know, we helped, we helped to get a lot of interpreters out, but me and Aziz's relationship was like so significantly special because the fact that we did all eight deployments together, I lived in his home. I held his babies. Like, you know, like we just had this special relationship. His wife, Hatra, who's worked, who works for us now, she's right next door. I mean, meeting her as an Afghan woman. And I remember first meeting her and going to her house. And Aziz had met my wife on Yahoo Instant Messenger. And he thought it was so, so special to meet someone's wife, which, because they don't do that in Afghanistan, right? Especially, you know, back then. So I introduced him to his wife. My wife tells him, hey, keep my husband safe. And he, he, made, he said yes. And that to him, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, I'll keep your husband safe. It was like, yes, man. Like it's a commitment. Like now he's obligated with his life to keep me safe. And so he wanted me to meet Hatra, his wife, which is like, for him, for his wife to meet another Afghan would be off limits, much less an American. And uh, so we had this real awkward, like, introduction to Hatra. She's, like, in her bedroom. Her face is covered up. I'm standing in the living room. He's sweating bullets because he's, like, I'm getting trouble for showing it. And I'm showing my wife to this, this that's American. And so she, I'm waiting. I'm, like, super uncomfortable. And she, like, pops out down the hallway. And I see her all covered up, just her eyes. And then she goes away, like, three seconds. And it was like the biggest deal in the world for him. And then over the years, like her being in the kitchen and passing by her face being uncovered. So years of getting closer to her, meet, meet her handing me the baby to hold. And then, uh, and then, you know, eventually like the rescue after Afghanistan, after a rescued meeting in the humanitarian center in Abu Dhabi and, uh, and the whole family, all the kids, as these comes up, all the kids come up, kids are calling me uncle Chad and hugging me. I'm crying. And she's standing in the back corner of the room after this, she was rescued and, and puts her hand over her heart in kind of Afghan fashion and says, Tasha Kerr, which means, you know, thank you. And I say, Tasha Kerr Ness, which is, you're welcome. And at that, that moment, but then when she gets to America, she's in my driveway and, uh, and she runs up to me and puts her arms around me and says, thank you, brother. Like that's the, the progress of that relationship. And then, so that just shows you how, like how personally bonded I am with that family. And, and like I said, holding the kids as babies and, and FaceTiming over the years with Mosh, Mosh Kaur, the little one, and teaching him English and, and being his uncle. And then there's another side of this story. There's the other guys that me and Aziz worked with. There was this whole group of Afghans that were like former Mujahideen, Northern Alliance fighters who hated the Taliban, handpicked, trained by the CIA, and then embedded with us to fight with us. Uh, these guys were like super tough guys. There was one guy, his name was Bashir. And uh, I mean, I spent me and Aziz would take him out on operations with us. It'd be like me, Aziz and Bashir out in mountains for like weeks at a time doing operations. Dude's like super tough. And, uh, he was, you know, hated the Taliban and, and, uh, he was just, he was, I trusted him with my life. I trust him with operations. Well, he ended up for whatever reason, we still don't know this day flipping to the Taliban and he compromised our operation and, uh, 12 of our teammates were captured, two Americans, 10 Afghans captured, held, I imagine tortured. And, and execute it. It was horrible. 
uh, you know, one of the worst days of my, of, of my life to have these these guys work for me. I played soccer with their with their kids. I ate dinner with their families. Like these were these were my brothers. I, I love these guys, and they would have died for me, and I would have died for them. I, I do believe they did die for me, and so it was a horrible incident. Through that incident, Aziz was compromised, and uh, and and uh, from that moment on, Aziz chose to continue working with us. Knowing he was compromised, he had to separate himself from his father, his brothers, everybody to continue working with us at that point. Uh, also, uh, the Taliban drove a vehicle bomb into our house, me and Aziz's house in Kabul, uh, a, a V-bed vehicle born ID device, drove it into our house, leveled our house. Luckily, none of us were there, killed, killed our guard. Uh, and then I ultimately was abducted by a foreign intelligence agency in a neighboring country. I can't say which one is the Pentagon redacted it from my book. But uh, you could do the math like I was in a foreign country. So a foreign intelligence agency abducted me based on this compromise. Uh, and so everything changed for the way we operated. Aziz actually carried that operation forward for years after after being compromised. Uh, and and uh, so fast forward to the evacuation. Uh, Bashir is is uh, now a Taliban leader. Uh, and looking for Aziz. And the way that happened was our command, we actually caught Bashir. So our command caught him. We arrested him. He had like a notebook with like Chad sleeps here, uh, Larry sleeps here, like, you know, Bob sleeps, like everybody sleeps, like this is where everybody sleeps. This, their routes and times, even though we're deviating our routes and times, he created a pattern of life. This is where the safes are. This is where the guns are. These windows are mylar. These ones are not. Like he had a total, like, uh, like all of our, our, our everyday life, he, he had documented he also had like a, you know, had like a plans of, of how they were to grab us. So he was like prepared to capture our team for the Taliban. So he was like dead to rights, caught, uh, spent a little bit of time in uh, the Bagram, Bagram jail and then was moved to the Porlo Charki jail in, in Kabul. But instead of going to Guantanamo, some of the guys went to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Other guys went to Saudi Arabia. There was a, another secret jail there. And uh, so that's where he went. In 2011, President Obama did a massive release of all the guys in Saudi Arabia. And uh, Guantanamo would have been a little bit more too public. So he did a mass release of all these guys in Saudi. And so Bashir goes back to the Taliban because now he can't serve with the U.S. military, joins the Taliban, becomes a Taliban leader. So when President Biden makes the announcement of the withdrawal, Bashir contacts Aziz. I know where you live. I know where your father lives. I know who your daughters are, your sons are, and I'm coming to get you. Uh, so this wasn't like, but Aziz is going to be killed because he was interpreter for America. This was much more specific. And, uh, and in, in fact, there was another guy that worked for us that uh, Aziz knew that Bashir had got to and already killed um, working up to the withdrawal. And so it was very specific. We have to get Aziz out or he certainly will be killed. His daughters will be raped and maybe killed, uh, uh, but, uh, but maybe enslaved and his sons will be forced to be Taliban or killed. Like, Something bad's going to happen to Aziz for his work with us. So for me, going to get Aziz was not just about him being an interpreter. It was about this specific threat to him. And so uh, I'm not in the military anymore. So I have the ability to, you know, freely go do what I want as a civilian um, within international laws, you know, freely go do what I want as, as a civilian. So I started calling some former uh, special operations veterans who I know and trust uh, that have a certain certain skill sets. A lot of guys with AFO experience or ASO level experience working independently. Also, I was looking for guys that had a lot of combat experience that wasn't looking to go in a fight the Taliban or sow their wild oats. Like, we're not going there to get in a fight with the Taliban. We're going there to rescue my friend. And so I wanted to make sure there was mature, seasoned guys. 
And I also needed to raise, raise money. So I was looking for guys that had some guys had platforms, one of them being, you know, Tim Kennedy, who I think was on your show. Right. So, so Tim, I, I'll call Tim and, you know, Tim's a lot of people don't know about Tim is, you know, not only was a special force sniper, but he was ASO level three doing AFO type work, clandestine work around the world. He has the experience to do this. He's a great friend of mine for over a decade and I know and trust him. And he could also help me on the social media front to be able to help raise money for this very expensive operation. Uh, and again, you know, going for people I trust, uh, some other four Recon Marines, Navy SEALs, a few guys from uh, CIA Ground Branch, which is our paramilitary unit. So very experienced guys and putting this team together. And, and as we're talking, one of the guys just picks up his phone and he's like, hey, uh, I just got a text message. Um, these 3000 orphans were just abandoned. Um, the, uh, the orphanage, you know, people are, people are, you know, it's like a, a ship sinking people are in self self-preservation mode. So these people left these orphans and he's like, I know this going to get disease in his family is important, but this is bigger. And I remember we just all kind of thought about it. And we like, we got this incredible group of people. We had 12 special forces, veterans, special, like from the special operations, special operations, veterans. Uh, we had Sarah Verado from the independence fund, who's brilliant and a very good connector in Washington, DC. We had the right team. We were willing. And we all felt like a little, I think all of us were pretty strong people of faith. And we all felt like God was burning our heart to do more. And uh, and we made a decision at moment to just not just help Aziz and his family, but let's go as far as we can. Let's let's see how far this could go. Let's help as many Americans, interpreters, their families, women, children that would be persecuted. Let's help as many people as we can. And um, we, we've gotten a lot of credit for this. Um, I got like the Bonhoeffer Achievement Award. I got a lot of people give us credit for this, but the truth is, I'm not smart enough, like capable enough to pull this off. This is, I believe that God stepped in and used our willingness to say yes to orchestrate a miracle. I mean, because uh, a series of events happen that uh, that the only the only way I could describe them is is like divine miraculous. And so I I do believe I don't you know I don't know where you are in your faith. For me, like this these moments like this in life like like define my faith. Like to see stuff like this happen that are like humanly impossible. I mean, we we got first of all we had this team that came together. A uh, very uncommon way came together, and we're willing. In, in a period of three days, we got permission from the Joint Chiefs to land on H Kaya in Kabul, that airport that was controlled by the DoD and the Neo operations being run by the State Department. We got permission to land there and conduct rescues of people outside the wire as civilians. To really break that down, that's anybody's been around the military knows it's an impossibility because the military was not allowing the military to do it. The Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense and then and the State Department, Secretary Blinken, they were not allowing the mili US military leave to do these operations. And now we're civilians going in and asking permission to do this. So the fact that Sarah Verardo was able to get the Joint Chiefs to give us permission to do that was a miracle in itself. Not only that, but they were good, they were willing to take the time to, to vet our people and make sure our manifest had approved people on it. In addition to that, they gave us a total, our own ramp, our own runway to do uh to be able to fly civilian aircrafts on and off. Now I have to move the next problem I have to do with next impossibility is I have to move people without visas. Cause remember, these are people that applied for visas, SIVs, which is special immigrant visas, interpreters, P1, P2 visas, people that have association with the United States. Uh, we have to find a reason to bring them across the border. Cause if I move someone without a visa across the border, that's human trafficking. And the only place you could do that is Laredo, Texas. But, you know, in the real world, we have to follow rules like uh, how do you move someone across the border without permission? You have to have a place to bring them for refuge. You have to have a humanitarian center or a refugee center. So we had to find the country that was willing to do that. One of our team members had grew up with the Royal Prince of the United Arab Emirates family. And we called them and, and asked for audience. I put a, I put a few congressmen on the phone, uh, a senator on the phone. 
and uh, got the you know, royal family uh, as well as the uh, the ambassador's uh, executive, the deputy ambassador to the United States on the phone. We had this call and I we briefed what we were going to try to do. And I it was a silent on the other end. I'm thinking these people think crazy that we're going to try to bring, you know, do this. And uh, at the end of the call, they like, we want in, we want to help. Uh, we'll roll out the red carpet. We will give you access to a humanitarian center with doctors and food and all the things that we would never think of to care for these people. In addition to that, we'll give you two C-17 planes, which are large military aircraft and pilots. And then on the third day, I'm like, I'm putting the operation together. And like, this is going to cost tens of millions of dollars to build to, to keep operating like this aircraft. And, and, and uh, Glenn Beck, radio show host Glenn Beck calls me up. Uh, he's a, uh, runs an organization called Mercury One. Uh, charities and we work together a lot with my foundation and Mighty Oaks Foundation and caring for veterans. And so Glenn called me up and said, Chad, I, I just want to do something. So I got on the radio to raise money. I thought I'd raise a few thousand dollars, but I raised $21 million. Ultimately, he raised 40 something million dollars. He's like, I don't know what to do with it. Like, what are you guys doing there? And I'm like, I need you to start chartering planes. And so he he put a guy named Rudy Atala in charge of chartering aircraft. And uh, and so all this, that's why I said all this stuff like miraculously came together in three days. And if any one of those things didn't work in the sequence it worked in, the whole thing would have fell apart. And so we we get to Abu Dhabi and the United Arab Emirates set us up an operations center there, gave us ability to, to work with their generals to, to control aircraft. We put a team on the ground uh, at the HKI airport. A guy named Sean G, Dave Johnson, Tim Kennedy uh, was on the ground team and a guy named Seaspray. Those four guys were on the ground at the airport and uh, to go outside and, and do the um, go outside the wiring and grab people outside the airport in our Abu Dhabi Center, which I was running the Abu Dhabi Center. We were putting together the basically taking our requests, building target list for rescues and orchestrating these rescue operations. And uh, everything happened so fast, like no one slept. If you stopped to sleep for five minutes, like someone was going to die, like you're trading five minutes of sleep for someone's life. Like literally, it wasn't like a phobia, like you really were. And uh, everyone just pushed so hard. I mean, Sea Spray lost 37 pounds in 10 days because he would not even stop to drink water. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was it was just crazy chaos. Anybody that witnessed that airport, like, I mean, you didn't see it on the news, like you see people falling off of planes. But I think what people didn't see was like the, the most extreme example of the desperation was you got 100,000 people outside that gate trying to surge the airport. You imagine like a mom having a baby. If anybody's had a, listening's had a baby before and know how like, precious it is to protect the baby. How they were, the moms were taking their babies and in fear of it being, becoming a, a female, like sex slave to the Taliban or becoming a, put in a madras to become a Taliban. They were so desperate to protect that baby that they put it on top of, probably kissed it goodbye, hugged it goodbye maybe, and put it on top of that crowd of 100,000 people to be crowd surfed to the wall. And then whoever got it at the end of that wall would throw it as hard and as high as they could to get over that wall, hoping a U.S. service member would catch that baby. What they didn't realize was on the other side of the wall was six feet high and 20 feet deep of Constantino wire. My buddy Joe counted six babies that bled out in that wire. And God uh, damn it. Yeah. So that's the level of like desperation. And we just kept pushing and, uh, you know, and we're, well, as we're talking right now, I don't know when this is airing, but as we're talking right now, we're sitting on an anniversary date of the Abbeygate, second anniversary of the Abbeygate being blown up and, when Abigail blew up, you know, 13 of our service members died. Uh, hundreds of service members were injured. Um, hundred, another 170 civilians were killed. 200, uh, uh, you know, you know, so, you know, the hundreds of people were, were injured at a gate and, and we could have prevented that. I, I could go, I could really go into how this could have all been prevented, but, but uh, when that happened, the U S military was forced to weld the gates shut and the evacuations at that point were over. And um, 
you know, in that moment, we kind of tallied up how many people we had got out. And by the way, in that moment, by the way, when Abigail blew up, Tim was just at Abigail and Sea Spray. And I was like, couldn't get a hold of them. It took me like five minutes to get a hold of them. And in that five minutes, I thought, you know, man, because they were just coming through it. <clears throat> but in, in that moment, you know, we knew uh, we, we had knew we, we got about 12,000 people out and the military wasn't able to be there anymore. But we felt like an obligation to stay. The news was saying that there was 100 Americans left, which I was saying there were thousands. And I was in the news saying there were thousands. And uh, I was being called, the, you know, conspiracy theorist or that I was uh, embellishing. Now we know that to be true because, uh, you know, the, the hearing showed that there was over a thousand Americans there. But the, the, all you had to do is do the math, right? The the White House had said there were 16,000 Americans. And then they said they got out 6,000 Americans. But then they said there was 100 left. I'm not that great at math, but I'm better than that. Uh, you know, the, the number, decimal number there is, is 10,000. And, and the White House is saying, well, all they have to do, if they want to get out, all they have to do is go to the, go to the airport, right? That's where, that's where you go. Like, man, what people have to realize is that the White House took the NEO operation, non-combatant evacuation operation, away from the Department of Defense where it belongs and gave it to the State Department. The State Department treated that airport like an embassy, which means they, they couldn't go outside to protect it. They could only protect the inner perimeter. And anybody who understands combat knows whoever controls like if you only control the ground space, whoever controls the outer perimeter of that ground space controls what has access in and out. We gave the Taliban the outer perimeter control. And so if you're some 20-year-old like girl that went to Afghanistan to teach English or work as a missionary or do like, you know, humanitarian aid or, or work in a hospital, if you're that 20-year-old girl, are you going to go to the Taliban and show them your blue passport while they're chopping off people's arms, while they're hanging people in the street, shooting people, because that's that's what they were doing. Of course not. You're going to be terrified. I wouldn't have, you know, went show my passport, my blue passport to those to the Taliban. And so that's what the White House is on the news telling people and then telling people they're not going to leave them. And then admittedly leaving their number a hundred, even though we knew there were thousands. And so for me, I didn't care if it was if I was right and it was thousands, and the White House was right, it was a hundred. One American. Uh, is too many. You don't leave one American behind ever. Uh, that's the promise that we have to the American people uh, as a nation that we will not leave you behind in a place like that, in a situation like that. And uh, and uh, but we did, and uh, it's atrocious that we did. Uh, and and now we know that it wasn't a hundred, that it was thousands of Americans that we left behind, and we don't know where many of them are today, and uh, and and spouses of Americans as well. Our, our uh, 100,000 interpreters that fought, bled, and died alongside of us for 20 years because we made them a promise, we, we left them behind. We left behind 40 million Afghans and 20 million women and little girls that would be sexually wow. enslaved. Uh, and, and, and you go back to why, like why we do it. Um, the lie that we were told, the why, was that we had been in an endless war, a 20-year war. We had to get out at some time. And most Americans, even conservative Americans, believe that. They believe that because they heard it enough, right? We're in this 20-year war. It's an endless war. We can't be at war forever. We have to get out. It was being sold in a wrong way because the truth is we wasn't an endless war. We wasn't a 20-year war. That ended in 2018. We should have declared a victory. You know, President Trump should have declared a victory and said, hey, we're in a sustainment phase now. Because all we were doing, we had between 2,500 and 4,000 troops there. We were doing a support and advisor role to the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police. And it was working. In fact, the entire international community was participating together. And it was one of the few places in the world where this international effort was working to keep terrorism at bay in the mountains of Afghanistan. And Bagram Air Force Base is the most strategic place today's current globe between Iraq, Iran, Russia, and China. So to give that up is, is a huge strategic mistake in national security. 
and in global security. But first of all, to give it up without talking to our international partners and advising them that we're going to do it without talking to the Afghan government that we spent 20 years putting in place and only talking to the Taliban, the enemy of 20 years is, is atrocious, right? That's all. I mean, and they signed this Doha agreement, which means the Taliban agreed that they will not allow terrorism to thrive in Afghanistan, to take place in Afghanistan. Well, it's null and void from, from signature because the Taliban is a terrorist organization. Uh, and, you know, and then months later, they, you know, kind of paraded around a victory when Zahari was uh, killed in Kabul. It's like, how could you be proud that we killed him? Like, what was he doing there? We created a hotbed for terrorism. Now you're going to be ha happy that you killed someone that was there. You killed one person. So, I mean, uh, the whole thing was a giant mistake. Uh, you know, lots of motives could be cast. I mean, first of all, the, the, all of our generals and the Joint Chiefs recommended against the withdrawal. All of our intel uh, committee leaders recommended against the withdrawal. The 12 State Department diplomats on the ground, whose job is to advise, sent a dissent cable that's, that had been hidden for over a year and a half. And finally, Congress had to had to force under threat of a subpoena, by subpoena and force of holding the Secretary of State, Secretary Blinken in contempt for not releasing it, advised against the withdrawal. But President Biden chose to anyway. And the only people I'm, I'm not going to point to, you know, why he did. But you have to look at the motive, right? When you look at somebody, who who had the most to gain? The United States certainly didn't. We're in a, uh, we we're in a, our national security has been compromised over it. Uh, the global security now Southeast Asia is unstable, right? You don't leave contingents like that. We, uh, you know, twenty five hundred troops on the ground in Afghanistan. I can name ten places right now in the world we have twenty five hundred troops. We still have eighty thousand troops in Japan since World War II. 40,000 in Germany since World War II, 35,000 in South Korea, protecting North Korea from coming across at 38th parallel. Moving 2,500 troops doesn't prevent wars. It it creates war. It creates instability. Uh, that's what America creates stability in the world. And so uh, the only person that benefited was not international computer. It was not America. It certainly wasn't the Afghans. The only people that benefited was Iran, uh, China, and, and Pakistan ISI. Pakistan, uh, uh, then their, their, their CIA. That's the people who benefited most. China wanted the mineral rights to Hindu Kush mountains. They wanted it for years, worth trillions of dollars. Actually, it's said to be worth an infinite amount of money. And they wanted that those mineral rights. I, I was called a conspiracy theorist for saying this is the motivation. Uh, we left on August 30th. August 31st, China got those mineral rights to the Hindu Kush mountains. They wanted to be able to move, Iran wanted to be able to move sanctioned oil across Afghanistan to China, who needs oil. Uh, that was not allowed to be able to do that while U.S. military was there. Uh, and we left in August and September to start moving oil across uh, Afghanistan. And, uh, you know, and we know that uh, that Bagram Air Force Base with $85 billion in uh, U.S. military equipment and technology was taken over by China and Pakistan ISI, and they have access to all of our equipment and sensitive information. So everyone, been, all of our enemies benefited, but we didn't. Uh, so, you know, kind of went on a rabbit trail there, but when we left that base, uh, our military was forced to leave. They didn't want to leave. They felt humiliated for having to leave, but us as civilians didn't have to leave. We got 12,000 people out. So we chose to stay. Uh, we, we did a, we led a joint effort with a NGO coalition and got another 5,000 people out to a place called Ma Maza Sharif. A lot, again, we got a lot of credit for this. A lot of great organizations, Task Force Argo, like, uh, so I can name a list of so many organizations that we worked with to get more people out uh, and that 5,000 people out. And um, and so 17,000 total people we got out. And then towards the end, we just felt like there was a little bit more we could do. And uh, there was a movement of former commandos that worked with us. And they were moving all the women and children to a place called the Panjir Valley. 
and they were staging them to move them across the border to Tajikistan. And when I heard that, I had been in those mountains before, and I thought, man, they're going to try to move women and children across the border into Tajikistan. First of all, those mountains like 25,000 foot peaks. So they're forced into deep valleys that are treacherous terrain. They could be channeled in. The Taliban is saturated that area. Uh, and in addition to that, if they make it to the border without knowing where they were going, some of those uh, some of those uh, border points end up into a like a thousand foot cliff. And so they're trapped in a valley and can't go any further. In addition, the border between Afghanistan and Tajikistan is the Panjir River, which is category five rapids in some points, and it's ice melt water. So it's freezing. So to move women and children across that, most Afghans don't know how to swim. Uh, it's, you know, it's super dangerous. And most, and you think of Afghan women, right? You have to imagine most Afghan women, probably half of them are pregnant. So now you're moving, you know, a lot of pregnant women, kids across. It's, it's just impossible to do. In addition to that, never made it to the media and the news, but the Chinese military saturated that border. The Russian military saturated that border. And uh, in the Tajikistan border guard, of course, is there. So we thought the best thing to do is be able to provide them with the right information of where to cross and how to cross. Uh, that's what recon Marines do. It's a kind of a force recon core mission. And so I thought, hey, this is my bread and butter. I could do that. And so I put together, uh, first we put together a team. We ended up uh, going with myself and a, a Marine named Staff Sergeant Dennis Price, who was another miracle because the Marine Corps cut him loose to come with us. Uh, he's a you know, amazing human being, force recon Marine, team leader of the year, scout sniper, uh, worked at JSOC as well, and I just really wanted to go. And uh, I thought he was a great fit. The two of us flew over to Tajikistan, and we spent about 12 hours driving across the Tajikistan mountains, made it to the border, and spent 10 days on the border. We did about 90 miles of border reconnaissance, We and, and uh, ended up selecting six spots. And every night for 10 days, we swam across the Panjshir River into Afghanistan, uh, you know, past Chinese, past Taliban and, and built six routes out. When I say built six routes out, we do what's called fording reps. Uh, and you know, where, where, where can they hide? Where can they tie rope bridges? Uh, how deep is the water? How fast is the water? How cold is the water? All the different information they need. Where are the bad guys at? Where do you, where's cover and concealment? Uh, here's where we're going to stage, uh, all the equipment for a rope bridge. So you could actually use this, this where it's at is a 10 digit grid. This where your equipment's at the cross has how to cross. So we, we spent 10 days doing that. And uh, we're able to, you know, last effort was able to help a lot of women and children uh, be, be pulled out by these uh, brave commandos that we had got to serve alongside. And, uh, you know, unfortunately for us, that, that was a, that's where it ended. Uh, and as far as evacuations go, we, we are still working every effort we can to still move people out. However, uh, right now we, we're moving to phase and Aziz is actually, um, right now he's a leading program for SIVs because when the SIVs get here, they have no acclimation program. The government doesn't have anything like that for them. They obviously can't take uh, advantage of our VA, even though the VA is not that great. <laughs> they couldn't. They can't use the VA. So how do they get care for for the service they did for us? And how do they get? I mean, they didn't do one deployment, two deployments. They did twenty years of fighting, lost people. Sixty thousand Afghans were killed uh, in, in in their fight for freedom, and then they lost their country and lost. They left family behind. So there's no program for them. So we stood up a program at Mighty Oaks, our SIV program. Aziz has been trained for the last year on how to lead that by our staff. And, uh, and, um, right now he's in, uh, he's in, I don't want to say the state, uh, but he's in another state for me right now. And he's with, uh, he's with a hundred double zeros, which are CIA trained, uh, Afghans. And, uh, he's, he's, uh, leading them in a program and they're going to be coming out to our ranch and we're going to be leading them through a, a recovery program through Mighty Oaks Foundation. So, uh, we're, we're kind of seeing it through. We didn't just get them out. We care for them when they get here. So that's a lot, man. 
give you. I don't think one person on this podcast has ever left me speechless and craving more. And you went for essentially 40 minutes and didn't take a breath and you didn't lose my attention. I, the whole time, like, this is the most fucking amazing story I've ever heard. And at the same time, my heart is just shredded to pieces. It's horrific, man. It's a, this is one of the, you know, I'm 48 years old. I've been around, been to 50 countries around the world and I've never seen anything. I, I, I want to, to say how I'm feeling right now. I'll, I'll share a story. Uh, I was in Abu Dhabi. I had to, when I was in Abu Dhabi, I had to go in these meetings and I had to, they had the minister of interior, uh, minister of interior there. They had about 20 lawyers uh, from the Royal family and they had about five generals and we'd have to go brief them. And, uh, and, and we had just rescued a bunch of Americans and our, our military, by the way, I want to make sure this is not our military's fault. Our military wanted to do the right thing. Our white house would not let them do the right thing. And I remember being, you know, being so grateful that the United Arab Emirates helped me to, to lead our team, to rescue Americans when our government let them down. And, wow. and I remember in that moment, I was like, I was like embarrassed because I'm such a patriotic dude. I'm a, I'm a very proud guy. And uh, and uh, and I'm very proud of our country. And I was embarrassed for our country. I never felt more embarrassed to be American. I walked out, and uh, and there was there's a guy named Ken Isaac. He's if you're familiar with Samaritan's Purse, amazing organization. Ken Isaac came there to meet me, and he they 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 were a tremendous help to us. Ken Isaac's the vice president, vice president there over international operations, and and he he really encouraged me in that moment. And he's like, yeah, I get it. Like it's embarrassing, but look what's happening here. Our government let 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 us down and didn't do the right thing. But what would we expect from government? But look who's here doing the right thing. Our, when our, the government didn't do the right thing, good Americans stood up to help do the right thing and come together and do the right thing. So in that moment, I was never more embarrassed to be an American, but I was never more proud because we got to see people from all different walks of life come together simply to do the right thing. And when I say all different walks of life, like if you go on my social media, there's a lot of people that like what I do and like me. And there's a lot of people to hate me. I mean, you go into comments, like people think, you know, they don't agree with my conservative values, my, my faith and how I was outspoken about my faith. So I always get these haters. There was people writing me saying, I don't like you. I think you're an idiot, but what you're doing is awesome. Where can I donate? And I was like, that's freaking awesome. Like people coming together to do the right thing. We had a, we had a Jewish organization that wanted to pay for two flights. One flight was 800,000. One flight was 700,000. They wanted to pay for the flights. And, uh, and we gave them the, everything was happening so fast. So I gave them the routing number and they, you know, it's $1.5 million. And they call me back and say, Hey, we can't make the donation. And I'm like, did it give you the routing number wrong? Like what happened? And they like, no, you're, you're a Christian organization and we're a Jewish organization. Like we can't give Jewish money to a Christian organization. I'm like, okay, that's, I understand that, but you do realize we're rescuing Muslims. Right. And the guy just laughed and he's like, you're right. Like, let's do it. And we did it. And, uh, you know, a Jewish organization gave money to a Christian organization to rescue Muslims and show, you know, love of God and love of people for one another. And it was just awesome. Hey guys, follow us on all social media platforms to include Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Facebook group. We have so much information going out every single day and we don't want you to miss out on any of that stuff. So check it out. Go give us a follow. Man, you know, what's it like to walk around every day with all this heaviness on your heart? You know, I can't imagine what you must feel like because I'm just hearing the story. I haven't bear witness to anything. What does that feel like? I mean, it's, it's bittersweet, man. Cause, uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly, first of all, like I'm super proud of, uh, you know, Sarah and all the guys who, uh, who came on board the 12 guys, you know, 
Tim and Dennis and my son Hunter and Sea Spray. Like super proud of all those and to be part of that. But yeah, we rescued 17,000 people. And yeah, that feels good that we helped those people. But there's millions of people left behind. I still get I still get messages like, why won't you answer me? Why won't you save me? You know, you don't care about us. And and uh, you know, my my brother was killed, my husband was killed, like we're the Taliban's like down the street. And I mean, I get, I, I get pictures of kids that, you know, they're sending me pictures of kids and they please uncle Chad, save us. And, um, and so that just tears my heart out every time. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I do everything I can. And, and then you get the haters, right. There's always haters. Like as people like, you know, busting our balls on social media saying, you know, even when we were doing it, we were, when we were out there, people were like, you guys are stupid for going out there. I hope you guys get killed. You know, you guys get in the way of the military and, you know, people were giving Tim a hard time for being out there and saying he was, you know, showboating or doing it for attention. And it's just silly because I can't, I can't name one person that went out there and did it for anything other than everybody that was participating in this, by the way, like gave something up, you know, they, they sacrificed something to go, you know, Tim, Tim was offered like a tremendous amount of money to go on as a consultant for people. And he said, no. And they, and he came out and did this with for, originally just to go get Aziz for free. Uh, volunteer, do it for I mean, he didn't, he, no way I got paid anything and uh, walked away from his, he runs 20 something businesses, you know, walked away from his businesses to do this. Joe Roberts shut down his business and is still out in Abu Dhabi <laughs> volunteering to get people. Uh, you know, I know one guy from, uh, I don't want to say the name. One guy was at this CIA. Imagine we're getting the ground branch of the CIA. Like for somebody to know how hard it is to get the ground branch of the CIA, you have to be in special forces. You probably have to get, you know, college educated, uh, this guy, I don't want to say what college he went to, but a very prestigious level college he worked his whole life to go, you know, to special forces, to a, a premier tier one unit, get educated, go to ground branch, and then resigned from that career because they said, you can't be there doing this. And he said, I, this is the right thing to do. I want to be here to help these people. By the way, these are people he never met before from a country he never lived in. I want to help these people resigned from his career to do that. So anyone that says that anybody did this for like anything other than just to do the right thing in the right moment is, is you know, has no idea what they're talking about. And these, these are some of the most incredible human beings I did I've ever met. And they, they sacrificed so much to do this and just help these people. And, uh, you know, and it, and it went on into Ukraine. I mean, we've been in Ukraine and people bashing us in Ukraine. What are you doing in Ukraine? Like Ukraine's corrupt. And I'm like, Zelensky's corrupt. And I agree he is. And, and so is uh, President Biden. And uh, I'm not there to help President Biden or Zawinski. I'm there to help people. And, uh, you know, if you ever let politics get in your way of compassion to help people, you should probably change your politics. Um, you know, uh, you know, we uh, we have to have compassion for our fellow humans. These people in Ukraine didn't ask for this. These people in Afghanistan didn't ask for this. Um, I was driving. I was driving to the airport with my wife um, when we were meeting with Dennis and I were going to going to. Um, Tajikistan and my wife had the same, same question. My wife started to get scared. She's like, what are you doing? What are you trying to prove? <laughs> right. But you, you already got Aziz out. You know, everybody would understand why we got Aziz out. Why would you go back and do this? She's like, I know you can swim across that river. And I'm like, no, I can, I can swim across the river. And uh, she's like, I know you will. And you know, why are you doing this? And she got really upset. The only way I knew how to tell her to describe to her is, and this is my message to everybody out there. That's, you know, maybe questions what we did, you know, what if it was, what if it was us? And that's what I told my wife. What if it was, what if it was our sons that'd be forced to join madrasas and, and become Taliban? What if it was our daughter Haley who'd be raped to death for the rest of her life, you know, or raped for the rest of her life till she was used and abused and killed? Wouldn't we be praying that someone would come help us? And I, and I just thought my whole time of mind, like some, uh, somewhere out there, people are praying that somebody's going to come help us 
help help them. And 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 we had the ability to do it. And I mean, uh, always every time I make a decision, I lean forward to things that that I'm passionate about, burdened about, burdened at. And if doors start closing, I know I'm not supposed to go through it. I won't force it. But when doors fly open, uh, I know I'm in the right place. And 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 with this, the doors just kept opening, and we had the opportunity to keep serving, and we we kept doing it until the doors closed. And that's kind of how I treat everything we've we've done. And and uh, that's what that's how we've been treating Ukraine as well. And we have a team leaving tomorrow back to Ukraine. And we've I've been there 10 times this year. We were part of the Benjamin Hall rescue. And uh, you know, we got we recovered the bodies of so of service members that have got there, you know, volunteering and fighting. And we're on the front line. I've been I've been two hours past the front line of Russian occupied territory uh to just do what we can to help people. And and uh, you know, I think that's what we're we're here on this earth in different capacities, but whatever our gifts and talents are, we we should use them to help you know people around us. I'll ask this now. I'm going to ask it again later. But where can people donate to help you guys? Yeah, um, so MightyOaksPrograms.org is our website. Um, we we do a couple of things at Mighty Oaks. We do resiliency programs for our troops, and I, I travel around the world. I've spoken to over a half million active duty troops. In fact, this sun, this Saturday, I'll, Sunday, I'll be at Marine Corps boot camp speaking there, and First Marine Division next week. So we go speak to troops on suicide prevention, resiliency, spiritual resiliency, kind of prevent the problems that we have in our military. We have a recovery program at five ranches around the country. We do about $8 million a year in helping veterans recover and first responders from the law enforcement, first responder communities, military communities. We help them recover and we do everything for free. Like I said, we do about $8 million of programming a year, including paying for their flights. Uh, we have a policy side. So we advocate in Washington, D.C. for policy. I've testified before Congress. I've served in the White House coalition uh, for President Trump, and we work, work on policy to make sure that they get faith-based care is available for our, for our military and first responder communities. And then lastly is our international effort, uh, doing things like the SIV program, uh, doing things like uh, leading efforts in places like Afghanistan and Ukraine, uh, Peru, other places we've been. So uh, if people could support there, MightyOaksPrograms.org and these four efforts, or if any first responders or, or military uh, people or spouses or SIVs are listening and, and feel like they need help, you know, reach out on programs. Our programs are all free, no strings attached and reach out to us and we'll, we'll get, we'll get right back to you. There's an app apply button on our website to so donate or apply. What can you tell our audience and maybe the world about the people of Afghanistan, Peru and Ukraine? Because I think they're so disassociated, so separated and believe so much bullshit that they forget these are human beings there that don't want to be in those situations. What do you tell yeah. them about those people? So I was, I was on an interview recently, uh, not recently, a couple of months ago and, and somebody was giving me a hard time about being in Ukraine. And, and, uh, and I was like, if, you know, we were sitting face to face, if a baby was on the, was on a table between us and you know, were sitting across the screen right now, but a baby was sitting down right in front of you and it was choking. No question. You would, you would do everything you knew how to do to, to keep that baby from choking. If your neighbor's house was on fire, you're probably going to call 911, but you're probably going to, if you hear somebody screaming inside, I would hope you'd run inside and try to get that person. So how far does someone have to be away from you to lose compassion for your fellow human? That's that's really the question. Like how far, does they have to speak a different language? Do they have to live in a different zip code? Do they have to live in a different country? How far does someone have to be before you lose compassion for your fellow human? And, and I think technology, the innovation of this world, like being in America, certainly like it brings us in this, this bubble uh, that we become so naive to everything that happens around outside of our little world that we lose compassion. In addition, we just see so much like, you know, BS on, on social media. And we see, so we are exposed to so much like hardship that we become desensitized and forget that people really suffer. I mean, what if this was, what if, what if 
you know, a, a nation attacked us and we were suffering and you could say, just put all politics aside. My, my, my daughter's just been taken by Russian troops. She's being raped 20 times a day. Would you want somebody to come help your daughter? Like, and I think people lose that. Like for me, like I've been privileged and I know I have been to spend time in 50 countries around the world. Most Americans never left uh, the borders of our country. Most, a lot of Americans never even left the borders of the state, much less the country. And so I've been able to live and and with families like Aziz, sit across sit across the table and eat you know dinner with Aziz and go to weddings and parties and and uh, hold hold babies. And I've been able to have those experiences. I, I've I've been in Ukraine on the front lines to see citizen soldiers who don't even care who President Zelensky is. They don't care who President Biden is. They don't care about the corruption. They don't care about $118 billion. What they care about is their wife back in their in their home village. They care about their kids. They care about their form. They care about their cows and their goats and, and everything that, that's sacred to them. They care about their way, their freedom and their way of life. And that's what they're fighting for. They don't care about the politics of it all. In Afghanistan, uh, we look at Afghanistan as a this political, military, strategic place. The Afghan families, they don't care about anything like that. They care about being at peace and living their everyday life. You, you, a lot of people look at Afghanistan and associate it with terrorism and, and the Taliban. And uh, there's a reason that 60,000 Afghans died in the last 20 years fighting against the Taliban because they don't want that. They want democracy, freedom, and peace. And maybe not the same kind of democracy or government we have, but but nonetheless, they want peace. Uh, in, in Peru, you know, these people are fighting the cartels constantly and their, their soldiers are fighting and they're, and they're, you know, it's, I mean, especially in these border areas. And I mean, it's, there's people around the world that are suffering. And, and I think when you're in a place like you're in America, and I don't, by the way, I don't believe that America should be the world police. I'm not saying that. I, I've been to war a lot. My sons, my sons have been to war. Uh, my, I've seen the, the hardships of my family to war. I, I work in an organization that, that cares for people. Over half a million people now we've served that have been destroyed by war. I'm, I'm not a warmonger and I don't believe America needs to be the world police. But I believe as a, as a nation, uh, the light on the hill, the nation that America is and the strength and 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 a, and a power that we have, we have the ability to help nations around the world. It doesn't always mean going to war to do that. We have the ability to help, and, and when you have the ability to help someone in need, then I believe you should. You know, you know. So I think I think it's easy to sit in America and forget uh, uh, what what our neighbors around the world may be going through. I mean, right now, as I'm saying that, I, I think about my heart just is torn out to know these 20 million women and little girls in Afghanistan are being raped and tortured every they're nine years old that videos as you know, videos of little girls as young as nine years old being torn away from their families by 50 year old men that are Taliban that are taking these little girls as war trophies and being sold for like as little as three hundred dollars uh nine years old they they just want to play with their toys still they've been torn away and being sex slaves the rest of their life uh because of the decision that that we uh at our commander in chief uh, the president of the United States made, um, you know, how could anybody be okay with that? How could, where are the me too movement people? Where are the, where are the women's rights people? When you have 20 million women, these little girls and these women, they're not allowed to even have healthcare now because the women are not allowed to be educated as doctors. Women are allowed to be doctors and women are allowed to see men doctors. So they have no healthcare. They have no education. And by the way, some of these women, many of these women, uh, never even lived in that environment before they didn't, they wouldn't like had the Taliban and we freed them for a little bit. Some of these women are 20 years old or less, right? So they they lived in, they were born in their freedom. Some of them were nurses and doctors and teachers and dentists and worked at the university. They worked in parliament and the government. 
and they they experienced their whole life was nothing but freedom. And now they're they're they've been sexually enslaved by the Taliban. How can you not have compassion in your heart for that? I, I couldn't understand uh, anybody that wouldn't. Where does the mindset of the human being come from as a Taliban scumbag to be this kind of human being to another human being? It's just wild to me. Yeah, it's I mean, it's, it's a couple of things. One, it's it's you know every every one of these ideological uh, radical organizations is always based on two things: you know, power and sex. Uh, sex is usually what drives it because they want power so they could have sex. I mean, you know, deep, deviant men uh, who are driven by sex uh, usually make decisions like this. And they, I mean, if you look at uh, any kind of radical, any kind of radical religious organization like the Taliban, they want people to be uneducated so they can't read God's word for themselves. Uh, and they take it and they use it as a tool to control people. And, uh, and then they use it as a tool to, uh, to build, put themselves in power. And uh, I don't think most people that lead the Taliban even believe half the stuff they teach in the madrasas, uh, but they they use it to manipulate, you know, the uneducated people and control them. I'm uh, literally just making sure I get to your website on my phone. I wasn't texting somebody to make sure that <laughs> right. I, I'm i there to donate as soon as we conclude. Um, yeah, man. by the way, uh, you know, uh, I, I didn't mention it, but we did write a book saving Aziz is the title of the book, uh, wall street journal. Bestseller, um, and it's being made into a movie. Um, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm super excited about not because, you know, this story gets to be made a movie because I'm, I'm, I'm excited about it for the awareness. So people know, uh, and I, and I had a lot of offers to make the book in that movie. And we picked, we, we turned down some of the biggest names in Hollywood produce production companies, to go with the people that would tell it right and tell it accurate and tell it truthful. And, uh, and, and ultimately it ended up being better because we got, it's fully funded. You know, it's going to be, you know, probably like a, you know, 30 to $40 million production. So it's gonna be a very quality movie done really well. Uh, I can't say the name of the writer and and producer, but it's a, um, yet I'm not allowed to say it yet, but it's everybody would know who that, who it was. Um, one of the bigger, bigger names in, in Hollywood that would be, you know, have, have some like-minded values and is going to do it, tell it the right way. Cause so many people will need to be honored by it uh, in the story. And uh, the truth needs to be told about what happened there. And so, yeah, it's being made, being made in a motion picture film and the books, the books available anywhere. Saving Aziz is the title. And we we have another book coming out uh, in next year on Ukraine as well. So. It's like so much to unpack here. I sit here and have so much guilt for not doing more at the moment. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm torn between like letting people know how much I care and what I've done versus like how embarrassed I am by how much I didn't do. And I'll just tell you a few things that has nothing to do with me, but maybe to emphasize how much I feel about this conversation. Um, I, as soon as the Russian-Ukraine war kicked off, I have very, very close Ukrainian friends and I just started shipping everything I could possibly send uh, off of Amazon to them and things that they didn't even think about. So like they wanted radios and I was like, man, how are they going to charge these radios? So I sent like the, the solar ba powered battery packs and dude, I sent a lot. And so like my friends are going like, dude, you're getting fucking, this is a lot. And I'm like, yeah, dude, I can't like emphasize enough. And then our VP here, her, she's a share babysitter. Her nanny was Ukrainian, but her family was coming over here. And so she's like, Hey, my, she's raising money for her family to live. And I'm like, yeah, here, take this much. And so the, she's like, oh, you know, tell them I said, thank you. I'm like, yo, I don't know what to say. 
I just hope that if I had to leave this country and go somewhere else, somebody had enough kindness and compassion and means that they would put themselves aside for a second and give me some of their money. And uh, the other one was my friend who's a realtor. Well, he's not a realtor. He's like, he owns like rental properties. He was actually building an apartment for uh, a person who's a translator from Afghanistan so he could live here. And I guess the government was paying for some of their living expenses in some sense. So he called me and said, you know, do you know, do you know of any place that, that they could, this family could live? They just got here. And I said, Frank, I'm selling my two family. Um, the upstairs apartment's available and they can, they can take that for now. And I, you know, but it is going to be sold in about 60, 70 days, but they can stay there. You know, we weren't doing the renovation yet. It's still pretty decent living. I, I imagine compared to where they came from Afghanistan, it was yeah, probably, yeah. it wasn't bad. And it was a really nice town here in New Jersey. And at the end, the guy said to me, and I don't know his name. And I was very, very busy at the time. And he says, like, you know, I, I just, they've given me money to use towards my allowance. And I said, use it for something else, dude. And I said, I, I just, on behalf of the American people, if there's anything I could do to help, uh, you don't owe me a dollar. So, you know, just, I, I might've stayed there for two, two and a half months. And it was my, it was my honor. And so as you're telling me these stories, uh, I think we t- all tend to forget what our role is as human beings. And, and you just want to help everybody, right? You know, like, and, and like, you just want to help everybody. I feel like I've been so selfish in some sense of like how I live my life. And I don't think we have to live a life. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of thoughts going. You fucking really brought a lot of emotions out of me today. Then I don't want it to stop and end, dude. I don't, I don't, I, I want to help and continue to tell this story on this platform. You know, I mean, just, it's, it's wild. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the world's you know the world's broken place. There's a lot of need. I mean, you can't if you have a true heart and compassion and a heart for people. Like it's hard to you know walk through a day without stumbling upon a need. And uh, so I think there's it comes a lot of discipline in that too. Uh, you make sure you're you know supporting in ways that you can actually make an impact and 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 uh, being focused about it because you could also get so stirred that you you know you put conviction on yourself that's unwarranted, right? You, that, uh, you know, first of all, you should be super proud and thankful. And I'm thankful that you helped that family. But uh, sometimes we, I do it to myself, like, man, there's some more I could do, there's more I could do. I mean, right now I'm in Hawaii. I'm like, my heart's broken for Hawaii. And I want to make sure that we, 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 you know, do what we can there as an organization. But also, I mean, it, it, are, are we able to be used there as an organization? You know, are we in the way? You know, so there's uh, you know, lots of needs out there. You, and you, you're using your platform like this, man. This is a... Uh, it's a great, it's a great way to, you know, platform and awareness is, is huge. You have the power to move people and, and, and engage, get people engaged. Man, heavy fucking conversation today. Do you think, I guess I have a few more questions before we kind of put the kibosh on this for today. And I think my first question is, would you be willing to come back on again and we can push some of this stuff and remind people I'd love to help. Yeah, no, absolutely. Come back on anytime. And, uh, and uh, I'd love to hear more about your event that you have too. Yeah, I think we could do something for you there. I'd love to help out. And if we could raise some money together for your organization we're in, you would not be the only organization we do it for, but we're fucking proud to have you, dude. Yeah, awesome. We need, we need all the help we can. We do we do a lot and it's a it's a heavy, heavy lift. So we need all the help we can. We have a, there's a lot of need out there and we're you know, we're able to step up and do it. We just need but we need partnerships. Yeah, I think we can um we can work with you because we're we'll probably have two thousand cops at our next event. We had sixteen hundred in Nashville last year. I will be in Orlando in April, uh, April 28th through May 3rd, I believe. So I think we're probably in the ballpark of 2,000, 2,500 cops at this event. And we'll definitely work with you to try to make sure that 
we can try to get some fundraising going for sure and try to see how much money we can't raise for the organization. Outstanding. Uh, yeah. We have a, I guess it, I would say we, we have a, just so you know, like on the, on the law enforcement side, uh, we, we have so many police officers come to our first responder program, but in Tulsa, P, Tulsa, we just, we just did a met in Tulsa yesterday. So it brings this up. Uh, Tulsa PD had one officer come through and in a period of two years, that one officer ended up having a, almost, almost 200 officers come through from Tulsa PD. The chief said that it changed the culture of their department, like having that many officers come through Mighty Oaks and, uh, which, you know, impacted the community. So, uh, you know, we, we are all about, you know, getting, reaching out, serving the law enforcement community equally as much as we do for our military at Mighty Oaks. Yeah. We need, we need to join up because we're trying to do stuff over here and, um, yeah, I never thought when I came in today that we would be, this is a clear partnership and I, I want to make sure that I, I do my part on your side as well, uh, for you guys. I, yeah, you know, I, I had so many and talk about that. I'm up for it. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, yeah, for sure. I just want to make sure that I, I'm, I'm prepared to help you guys out and, but at very minimum, no question about it. The conference can be employed to uh, bring more awareness to the, to the organization. And we have other organizations there that are nonprofits that we donate uh, our booths to, um, you know, because it, it's so interesting. People come to the conference and like, oh man, this thing must be a fucking crazy moneymaker. I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, think money you, you, you really think so? Um, I, I'd like it to be one day and be able to use that money appropriately. Uh, but do you really think it's that, that lucrative? Um, do you know what it costs to run one of these things? I was going to say it costs a lot to put on those kind of events. Yeah. So, so I had to speak at a lot of very large like men's conferences and, uh man, you know those events are crazy. I, I spoke at a spoke at one in Tennessee that just had eight thousand men, and it's they've uh, ignite and at Liberty University and five thousand men, and then of course Liberty. I do convocation there is like fifteen thousand people. Like putting those at events are oh, it's wild. <laughs> I um I just have a question about um I maybe this this last thing. How is Aziz and his family doing in the United States? Man. That's that's an awesome question because they're they're doing so awesome. They uh, you know, they've been been here over a year now. Aziz works for me. Uh, you know, he's running in our internet on our international team as a cultural advisor. He's building the SIV program. He he loves his job. He's like, if you once you meet Aziz, that's to say you got to have him on your show because he's like, he's like just such a his personality is just so like you just fall in love with him right away. His wife Hatcher works uh on our on our uh. Some, like all of our inventory side, like all of our stuff for programs. And so they, I get to see them every, you know, at work, but outside of that, like his, his kids, like they just loved uh, coming here and being part of our family and coming over and I've taken them do all their first things. Like first time swimming in a swimming pool, first time going to the movie theater, first Amazing. time going to eat a hamburger, first time eating ice cream, pizza, like all those things don't have that in Afghanistan. I took Aziz skydiving cause I'm, I still jump and, and we were in a plane and we we're about to jump out and he's hooked on a tandem rig. And he's like, man, you saved me from Afghanistan to bring me to Texas to kill me. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so like, it just like all these like amazing moments over the last year, uh, his wife, Hatra, if anybody's any military guys listening is in Kabul, there's, there's no trees in Kabul. It's kind of like Denver. It's high. It's a mile high. It's kind of dry, uh, arid climate. And there's no trees in Kabul. So as he's been all over the country and, you know, Afghanistan has mountains and pine trees, but in Kabul, there's none. So she's never seen trees before. So she comes to Texas where we live and we live in pine, like pine forests. And she's like thinking that she's in a jungle. She's calling, she didn't speak English well when she got here. So she was calling to the jungle and she's waiting for an animal to come out of the jungle and grab her. And so I, 
you know, I'm, I think it's funny, but I want to take them to see a movie because they've never been in a movie theater before. So I take her and the kids because uh, to see Jurassic Park and didn't realize how much I ter- how terrifying it was to her to see dinosaurs that seem real. And now she has to go home and her house is sitting up against the jungle. And uh, so, so she was trying to communicate to me how much it ter- terrified her with uh, taking her to see Jurassic Park. <laughs> are they are they acclimating to the American life now? How long have they been here? Uh, it's it's been over it's been over a year, uh, and they they are very much acclimating. Uh, uh, Mash Hara, the middle daughter, joined Marine Corps ROTC, which I thought was super cool. Wow. She wanted to do it. She wanted to join Marine. She went to Marine Corps RTC in high school. And I'm like, how cool is that? And like, uh, you know, and uh, so, uh, and then, uh, and then uh, Mashud and Mashuda both, uh, Mashud ended up uh, working for an oil field company that supports Mighty Oaks. He's like doing amazing. They, 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 I met the C- with the CEO again yesterday and he's like, I never, ever had an uh, employee as motivated and as like just, just the personality difference, right? They, because, you know, I love America and I love Americans. Obviously, I'm a super patriotic, but the way people grow up there to here, uh, I mean, he's this kid like he, they moved here. And, and I remember in July, it was last July in the middle of the summer. He's got his first of all, he had this ingrown toenail. So his foot's like swollen and he was cutting the lawn. And when I say July, it's I'm saying that because of the heat in Texas. He grabbed a five gallon water jug. And and walked three miles each way to the gas station to get gas to put gas in lawnmower for five gallon water jug and a five gallon gas can not water jug five gallon gas can to cut this lawn and I'm like why'd you walk with this busted toe and he's like oh it's fun like like for him like like it's just different you know the culture's different so he gets the opportunity to work at like this really good job in his oil field company and he's like so appreciative and treating it with such gratitude that somebody would give me a chance to have this job and his work ethic. And so uh, the CEO was like, I've never seen a kid work like this and have so much appreciation for a job. And uh, so seeing that, what what else? I mean, the other thing is, you know, Aziz has an incredible story of his transformation to his faith uh, to become a Christian. And, uh, and they, they've been going to church with us since he's got here. And, uh, and, and so he's getting an opportunity to speak at a lot of churches around the country and share the conversion of his faith. And, and he's just really has enjoyed that. And he, you know, for him, it's like a personal thing that he made his promise to God and during his evacuation of Afghanistan. Um, you know, I, I can let him share the story, but in short, I'll tell you that he, he was, uh, he was as Kabul was fall was as Afghanistan was falling, all the province was falling. The last province to fall was Kabul and all everybody had left. His his guards left him. Uh, his he couldn't go to his family because of what happened. But with Bashir back in uh, there in our compromise, he couldn't go to his family because he would have put them in danger. So he's just got him, his wife, and his kids in his house. And the Taliban's coming, and Bashir's telling him, "I'm coming for you." And so he starts handing out. Imagine his kids are like, at the time, you know, little Mash Mashkar is, is seven years old, all the way up to his oldest son's eighteen. So six kids. He's handing out AK-47s, ammo, magazines to his family, hand grenades to his family and saying, if they come from this corner, you shoot here. He's setting up shooting positions to do their last stand. That's where they were. Uh, and Bashir is telling them they're coming. And uh, and then he uh, he gets on his knees and starts praying. But he said he was praying and thinking like, man, I'm praying to Muhammad. Muhammad's dead. Like, and, and you know, all my American friends, you know, Chad, you know, they pray to Jesus. So I'm going to. I'm going to pray to Jesus. And so he said he got on his knees and he prayed to Jesus and said, you know, my daughters didn't do this. My sons didn't do that. So if you protect us, you know, uh, if you can at least spare and protect them, if you do, I'll, you know, 
I'll, I'll tell everybody the story about what you did. And he falls asleep. He has this crazy dream about, uh, about Jesus and about us rescuing him. And then, uh, he wakes up and the Taliban's in, in Kabul down the street. And, uh, and so he's, uh, you know, he's, he's scared. And, uh, about that time is when I called about an hour after his dream and he woke up, I called and said, Hey, uh, I need you to move. We're coming to get you. And, uh, I didn't know about his dream, but the last thing I said, when I got off the phone was God loves you. And, uh, and I do too. And then we, you know, eventually we were able to get him. And, uh, so he made a promise to God that he'd share that story with everyone. And so he's been traveling around and sharing that story about his, his faith. And, and, uh, it's been, it's been pretty incredible to watch him. Super, super proud of him. I used to have dreams of him. It's crazy. Cause he used to have these dreams of him when he's, you know, in Afghanistan, no sign of coming to America. Uh, and he's, uh, no sign of coming to America and, 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 and living as a Muslim, and I'd have these dreams when I'm speaking at, at these men's events. I'd have dreams that he would be doing that as, as I could see him in the stage. And so I'm speaking at a night at Liberty University in front of 5,000 men at this, you know, this event. And I, I get to introduce him the first time. First time he's speaking in front of 500 men, which if you're in a Christian speaking, speaking for 500 men is a pretty big deal. It's hard to get events like that. And uh, But I got to, to give him like seven minutes. And so I introduce him and I hand the microphone over. And when I did... Uh, cause I had just told a story about him, like all 5,000 men standing to give him a standing ovation. And as I'm walking away, I, I look back at a corner of my eye and I have the, and I see what I had been dreaming about. And I, I got overwhelmed, man. I was like in tears and I went back and grabbed the microphone back. And I'd tell all these men, like, man, I've seen this before. Like I, I dreamed this would happen, uh, that Aziz would be here doing this and sharing his story before it happened. It's been an incredible moment. He said like one of the most profound things to him, to me about when it comes to faith, when, when we were in Abu Dhabi. Before we the evacuation, we had applied for Aziz's SIV for six years. In the process of SIV, in 2009, Congress came up with this provision that if anybody served with us, once they fulfilled their contract, it was a nine-month process to take them through to give them their path to citizenship. Nine months because of their co fulfilled contract to us. Aziz had been in a process for six years. This is a guy that did 15 years in a top tier of special operations, access to top secret information, polygraphed, everything. Right. A hero, hero, not just to Afghanistan, but to America. And, and he had been in this process for six years. And we, I told him, you know, also times I'm like, man, I'm praying for you. This is going to happen. I, I know, I know people, by the way, I know people in Congress and Senate, like if it couldn't happen for him, imagine all the people that got blown off. Like, and, and we make it to Abu Dhabi and, uh, and, uh, and we're standing there in the middle of this and the kids are running around. And I'm like, dude, look, I'm like, Aziz, look at like, because you're so amazing and we love you. Like we came here to get you and all these thousands of people are here for you. And he, and he looked at me and he said, you know what? He's like, all those years you prayed for me to, and you fought for me to get that, get that SIV and get out of here those six years. He's like, the reason it didn't happen is because God knew. I'm like, God knew what? He's like, if I would have came out and got in the United States six years ago, you would never came to Afghanistan to get me. And all these people around here would still be stuck there. And like, I was like, man, the, the, how unselfish that was for him to say that. And the, and the awareness he had of that was just so like, so amazing, man. Yeah. He's an incredible dude. What's your relationship like with him now? Uh, I mean, I mean, we, we actually, you know, have always had this close friend relationship. I think things are just different. Things are just different now, like in a in a better way. Like we just, uh, I mean, one, I just have a tremendous amount of respect for him, uh, like personally, his just unselfishness, a willingness to sacrifice his authenticity. He's like one of the most authentic guys I know. And uh, and just like, 
and just to be able to work with him now. He's a, he's a very hard worker. And, uh, you know, he's worked for me before in, in the military, but now he's working for me now. Uh, but he's just such a hard worker. And so I have a lot of respect for him that way. Uh, but also have like, also like respect the fact that uh, how hard this has to be for him. I think a lot of people would look at a guy like Aziz and, or, or Afghans and think, man, that guy got a meal ticket, right? He came to America. He came to America. Like he's got a good job. He's living the American dream. Yeah, but they're cult this culture is different. This this culture may seem great, but so is like, you know, the way they grew up there. They they like the Afghan lifestyle. They like being able to, you know, sit around with neighbors every day and, and you know, everybody walks in each other's house without having to knock and and uh, and has family get-togethers and it lives life slower and appreciate things differently, appreciate food and and fellowship and and uh and, and they and his his father, his mother, he'll never see his father again. He, he would never see his father again. He will never see his mother again. He'll never see his brothers or sisters again. He, he'll never see his nieces and nephews again. And so while while people would think they, you know, these Afghans that came here got a meal ticket and cashed out and cashed in on the American dream, they also gave up a lot. And I, I get to spend time with him and and hear his heart and see him hurting for that still. You know, he they hurt, you know, his wife hurts and his uh, you know, uh his daughters, I mean his daughters especially. It may sound stupid, but they had a they had a dog and and uh you know. And the kids, uh, the kids, you know, their family dog, they had to, you know, they grabbed that backpack. That's it. Everything they put in the backpack. And their dog's sitting there crying for them. And as they walked away, you know, their kids are like, you know, still feel guilt for leaving their dog behind, which you know, sounds silly, but, but, uh, you know, to a kid, that's not silly. And, and they, they left friends behind and family. You know, they never see them again. You know, and this life, this lifestyle in America is great, but it's different. And uh, there's things that they love that they'll never have again there. You know, they come over to my house and go swimming and stuff like that. But, you know, Af Afghanistan, man, every day, every day is a, a get together. Every day is a party. <laughs> and they they just live life that way and they'll never have that again. You fucked me up today. That's for sure. Uh, but in a good way, like, oof. and I'm going to therapy in like 30 minutes. So <laughs> give him a tip today. Now I'm all, now I'm all, yeah, now I'm all like in a different state. Hopefully I can convey what I need to convey this afternoon. Um, you know, but, uh, man, we got, we, we got to pick this up again. We yeah, I'm in, man. So, all right. Well, dude, one more time. Where can people donate? I'm going to literally, no, no bullshit. Before I get out of this chair, I'm donating money again. Mightyoaksprograms.org is, uh, the website, mightyoaksprograms.org. And then if you want a copy of the book, Saving Aziz, anywhere books are sold. It's also an audio book. And, uh, and I read it. I did the audio read. All right. Well, listen, I'm going to have uh, Frankie send you my number and I appreciate it. And we'll, we'll get together and, and put this stuff together. I'm going to just rush out of here now, but right, thank I'll you so much. Mine too. So, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll have more, we have more work to do. And I'm going to leave these notes here because I have a lot of stuff I have to ask you. Right on brother. Appreciate, really appreciate it. Chad, it. This is great. And thanks to, thanks to your audience as well. So. Thanks, man. Thank you so much. Yep, yep. I'll see you. Hey, guys, check out our upcoming training at streetcop.com. Don't forget, we have 50 instructors nationally teaching a variety of topics. These are the best classes you're going to experience in your career. We make sure of it. You're going to love it. I guarantee you, you're going to be thankful that you went. Check us out at streetcop.com for all upcoming classes in your area.